0: Welcome to today's episode of The Rebound. Sustainability gets real in the supply chain. I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Ashkenazi. And joining us today is Tom Raftery. Tom's a global VP, futurist, and innovation evangelist for SAP. That's one of those titles I envy. He's host of two podcasts, the Digital Supply Chain Podcast, where he showcases the latest happenings in the world of supply chain technologies and the Climate 21 podcast where he highlights successful climate emissions reduction strategies and stories in order to educate and inspire listeners. And if that wasn't enough, Tom will be one of the presenters at this year's ASCM Connect, which will be live in Chicago and available as a virtual event, September 18th through the 20th, I'll be there. Tom, you're a busy guy. So welcome and thank you for sharing your time with us.
1: Bob, thanks so much for inviting me to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Abe, hey, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to hear from Tom is because I've noticed how sustainability seems to have come back to the forefront of supply chain discussions in the last year or so. And I know it's been top of mind at ASCM.
2: Uh, absolutely, Bob, and I think uh, among the challenges that we have is how to respond, not only as you know supply chain professionals, but as the industry. And I think we've seen quite a bit of focus on sustainability, a lot of rhetoric, maybe not as much action, but there's quite a bit of focus on sustainability So this is a really timely topic for us as an organization.
0: You know, I just did the uh, Gartner Top 25 for SCMR and am really impressed with the number of initiatives from the top 25 supply chains, plus their five masters uh, that are related to ESG. What I've been trying to figure out is really what's going on out there. What are leading companies really doing? What's driving it? So looking over the titles of some of Tom's podcasts, I think he's the perfect for this discussion. So, Tom, let's start with an easy one. What's really going on out there when it comes to sustainability and supply chains?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a fascinating topic to be honest it's one that's near and dear to my heart and has been for a long long time i'm a i'm a graduate biologist and so and even after i got my degree i went on to do postgraduate studies in biological control and i'm a little bit add and so while i was doing that i got distracted by this technology thing which was new and shiny and i I chased that down and so i've been i've been banging this sustainability drum for a long long time and the changes that i've seen happen in the sustainability space in the last two, three years are unlike anything I've seen in the previous 20. And I'm not sure why it is. Some people say it's down to COVID, and I'm sure that's part of it. People got a chance to do a bit of a reset. Some people put it down to the the 2015 Paris Climate Accord, and we hit 2020, and suddenly we had the decade of action coming along. But there's been an enormous shift before now, before 2020, let's say, the idea of what was previously referred to as CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, that that functionality in a company typically belonged to the marketing organization in a company. And, you know, right there, that tells a story in its own right. But more recently, with the shift away from CSR, and now people are starting to refer to it as ESG, we're starting to see because esg requires a higher level of rigor in reporting and it's still very immature that's going to it's going to become even more rigorous and 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 more defined but because it requires more rigor in the reporting we're starting to see that function now shift away from the cmos organization to the cfo's organization and so now that's going to be the, the big shift we see in the next few years. That and the requirement, as I say, for reporting. The, the SEC came out a few months back with their proposals and they're talking about all, well, they're talking about the the large publicly listed companies having to produce reports based on climate risk next year, and then all companies having to do it from 2024 onwards. And not just that, but a year later so, for large companies from 2024 onwards they'll have to start reporting out to their scope 3 emissions which has never been required before and for all companies from 2025 out to scope 3. so it means an enormous change and the, the other thing they said in their proposals was that those reports would have to be audited and that's an enormous change you can see the the auditor organizations are loving this but that's another reason why it's going to shift away out of the CM, cmo's organisation. To the cfo's organization because that requirement for rigor and reporting
2: i'm really interesting and it, it's not a new topic obviously we've been talking about sustainability for uh, for decades here obviously there's quite a bit more energy today around the concept of the esg beyond just the rhetoric it, give me a sense of from your perspective what's driving it is it the consumer is it regulatory is it are we just much more aware of the impact that supply chain is having? Give me a sense of what's really behind
1: this. It's all of the above. You know, I, I'm based in Europe, and if I, if I take a European lens on it, uh, the EU passed legislation in June of last year saying that we were going to have to, as a 27 nation block, reduce our emissions 55% by 2030. So that's seven and a half years. That's less than seven and a half years from now. And we've got to reduce our emissions, as I said, Now, that's unprecedented. That's enormous. The scale of the change that that will require is beyond most people's comprehension. It'll be incredibly hard to do. Now, to give you an idea, just to put that in context, first of all, I'll I'll, I'll ramp it down a bit because it's against our 1990 baseline, and we've already reduced 24% against that. So that leaves 31% and that 24% has gotten out of the system in the last couple of decades, but that still leaves 31% to get out in the next seven and a half years or seven and a quarter years, I guess, at this point. But again, to put it in context, during 2020, when we had the big lockdown, and pandemic-related businesses shut down, we reduced our emissions 7%. And then in 2021, as the economy started to open up again, it went back up 5%. So we had a net reduction between 2020 and 2021 of 2%. And we have to get another 24% out in the next, as I said, seven and a quarter years. It will require enormous structural change. And it's not just the EU. China have very ambitious targets as well. I know the Biden administration has enormous ambitions as well, whether they'll manage to get through some of those, they passed the IRA in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, massive, massive changes. And it's not just the regulatory changes. It is, as you rightly said, it's down to things like the uh, consumers being aware of it now, particularly younger consumers requiring that people they purchase from have a good sustainability story they can tell. But it's not just consumers. It's also employees on my Climate 21 podcast that you referenced. I talked to a guy called Ken Pucker, and Ken is the, the former COO of Timberland, and he mentioned that when they started on their sustainability initiative, and this was in the early 2000s, they started reporting their emissions, and, you know, very few companies were doing it then. And he said when they were doing it, because they were doing it, anytime they advertised a vacancy, he said they, the candidates that they got applying for that vacancy were far above Who they would have expected to apply for such a role and it was simply because they had a good sustainability story to tell he said their recruitment and retention costs fell they cratered because everyone wanted to work for them and everyone who was working for them wanted to stay working for them because they felt they were doing something important and that's even more true today so it's a question of if you have a good sustainability story to tell you are a in line with the regulations that are either out or coming out, but also B, you have a, a very easy time attracting customers, and you have a very easy time attracting and keeping your employees. So it's it's a win-win-win all around. Tom,
0: I want to ask you a two-part question, which I'm sort of want to do. Uh, and the first part is based on, on something you just talked about. Uh, so actually, the second part, but the first one is that European lens. So we're seeing. A lot of pushback in the U.S. Uh, I don't know if so much that it's coming directly from the business community, but certainly from certain parts of the political community against ESQ uh, and all that it entails. Are you seeing that same pushback in Europe? You know, and if so, how are they contending with it? And then I'll ask you the second part.
1: Okay. Yeah. No, there's there's very little pushback in Europe. I mean you do have fossil fuel company interests who are trying their best to delay anything that's happening, but they're fighting a losing battle. There's a great quote from Martin Luther King that is escaping me now, but it's something along the lines of the the arc of uh, justice bends to the right, or again, I've forgotten the exact quote, but you can look at the trend lines and you can see that Things are becoming over time more and more and more sustainable. The demand is there for it to happen. So it is going to happen. So anyone who is trying to delay it, they're ultimately fighting a losing battle. It it is coming. And I I mentioned the 2030 deadline. That will get us to 55% reduction, but we've got to get to net zero by 2050. And so the 55% we get out by 2030 is the low-hanging fruit. That means that from 2030 to 2050, we've got to work even harder to get that remaining 45% out. So this isn't a flash in the pan. This is something that we're going to be working on and working really hard on for decades to come.
0: So for the, for the second part, which I think flows from the answer just there, uh, every supply chain conference I've gone to this year, this has been, uh, you know, at, at ISM, the procurement uh, conference, it was the keynote. But it's been a major component of every event I've been this year. So certainly supply chain is going to be asked to play a role. As you see it, why is it falling on supply chain and what is going to be our role in meeting those goals?
1: You look at uh, any studies around emissions and supply chain, and they will tell you that depending on the industry, supply chain is responsible for anything from 50 to 95% of the emissions of an organization. I mean, uh, Ken Pucker mentioned it when he talked about Timberland. He said that at the time when they started out, they couldn't quantify their scope three emissions, which is their emissions from their supply chain. And so they could only report on 5% of their actual emissions because they were getting 95% from their supply chain. So in their case, it was 95%. So it can be that high. So that's why it falls in, in large part on supply chains because. Supply chains are responsible for the majority, often, of an organization's emissions. So that's, that, that's why. And what can we do about it? Well, there's various things. Um, I think at the very least in our RFPs, RFQs, we've got to require our suppliers to report on the emissions that are associated with anything that we purchase from them. That's going to be a probably man, that's going to probably be mandatory, depending on geos. But that's going to be mandatory. I would suspect in the next few years, uh, all companies will be required to set targets, set science-based targets. There's a thing called the Science-Based Targets Initiative, who have standards around doing this. So it's likely that most organisations will be required to set targets and then report against them. Uh, everyone will be required to report on their emissions. So that's just going to be a thing that everybody does. It will get to, to a point where every business decision that is made will be weighed not just on its financial implications, but also on its on its climate implications. It will truly become the climate economy. The global economy will become the climate economy. The other kind of things, I mean, there's, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, as, as I referenced earlier. So if you are in a region where you have a choice of electricity supplier, you know, just look for one that has a, a renewable tariff a green tariff one that where you know all your electricity that you're getting is 100 percent renewably sourced and if you can get that then like i said that's low hanging fruit the next step is to then convert everything in your organization to electric convert your heating convert your cooking if you have kitchens uh, convert your transportation to electric and suddenly your emissions come way 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 down and you know work with your suppliers as well because you can't just straight away mandate that they report their emissions to you with everything rather work with them to help them do that to understand why you want them to do that and explain to them how you would like it to, to be done and then offer them uh, advice on how they can reduce their emissions so that they help you meet your targets so those those are some easy wins there there are other things like setting an internal carbon price one that can work very well, but you would find a lot of pushback against is to um, set KPIs in your organization so that executive remuneration is tied to emissions reduction goals. That one can be very powerful, but like I say, hard to implement.
2: Tom, you're bringing up a, a really a number of great examples here. A couple of studies that we've done, not only with the economists, but with Gartner, it did indicate that size does matter that predominantly larger organizations, more publicly listed organizations, are much more likely to not only set the benchmarks but to report out on them. You talked a little bit about how the larger organizations can help their partners as well. Can you give us a little bit of sense of what these top leaders and these organizations are doing that can you know, be maybe a little bit of a roadmap for other organizations?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's everything you said, Abe. Eh? The the larger organizations are very often working with the likes of the Science-Based Targets Initiative and they're working with other organizations like that to to set an, to create an example and to work with agencies as well to make sure that the the kind of the, the targets that are out there are achievable by organizations and that they are cross-compatible. So because it's it's one thing for an organization like the Science-Based Target Initiative to come up with targets but they have to be targets that industry can work with so these targets that that are created are often created in conjunction with larger organizations so the the likes of the large technology companies engage with the science-based target initiative and say these are the kind of things that we need to come together with to create the targets for our industry and that happens across industries so that that's a big part of it. Another thing is working with the regulators to say which kind of regulations can actually work because the the kind of regulations that we want to be putting out there are not just the stick, you know, beating people over the head. You need to have incentives as well. It needs to be combined carrot and stick thing. So a phenomenal example of that is the country of Norway. So Norway at the moment if you look at new private car sales in Norway, the new car sales are typically now in and around 90 to 95% electric vehicles for new car sales, new car registrations. And that has happened over a number of years through fantastic incentives that the Norwegian government has put out for private citizens. The new cars in Norway for decades had a very high taxation regime so it was always very expensive to buy a new car so over decades if you went to norway or or denmark similarly you would find that the car fleet there is typically a little older than in most other countries but when electric vehicles came out they decided not to tax them not to put a tax on new so it's it it leveled the playing field straight away in terms of price because the electric vehicles initially were significantly more expensive but because they didn't have that tax they came down to equal and then as the cost of new evs started to fall they were cheaper than internal combustion engine vehicles and then they had other incentives like free parking free rides and ferries free tolls and roads the ability to use the bus lanes all these kind of things and so it became a no-brainer to, to buy EVs. And in fact, because you had a heavy tax on non-EVs, that was, that was a stick, everyone switched. And so, like I say, now it's about 90 to 95% new vehicle sales are EVs in, in Norway. Um, things like that, those are the kind of things that need to happen. We need to have those kind of incentives to incentivize the right behavior, and then a bit of a stick in terms of heavier taxation to try and penalize what we'd call bad behavior. I mentioned the 55% emissions reduction in the EU. One of the other things the EU is doing, which I forgot to mention, is they're putting in place, or we're putting in place, what's called a carbon border tax. And what that is, is we're putting a tax on goods coming into Europe from outside based on the carbon emissions of the goods that come in, so as to kind of level the playing field. So if something is coming, if maybe steel or concrete is coming into the EU from outside the EU, and it comes from a country that has a high carbon rating, then there'll be a tax, an extra tax put onto that to make it more expensive versus the lower carbon concrete or steel that has been created in the EU. So it's those kinds of things that need to happen. A lot of this needs to happen at the regulatory level because it's all very well you and I buying an EV or putting solar panels on our roof or whatever it is at an individual level, but that's not going to move the needle. It needs to happen at a kind of a country level. It needs to happen at a regulatory level. It needs our politicians to make these things happen.
0: Tom, those are two uh, really great examples from a national level or or country strategies. Uh, I know on one of your podcasts, you highlight success stories. Can you think of uh, some examples from the world of supply chain of uh, strategies that companies are uh, employing to bring down their carbon emissions?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a number of things. So, I mentioned uh, electric vehicles, for example. So, in the transportation and logistics space, the shift to electric vehicles is, again, it's, it's a no-brainer. And so, that's, that's one that people can do quite easily. And it, it is a, it's a multiple win, because electric vehicles, not only are they cheaper to fuel, but they're also cheaper to maintain the maintenance cost of an electric vehicle is about 50% or less than 50% of the maintenance cost of an internal combustion engine vehicle. If you think of the drivetrain of an internal combustion engine vehicle, whether it's petrol or diesel, it, it contains typically in the order of about 2,000 moving parts, whereas the drivetrain of an, of an electric vehicle contains about 20, so two orders of magnitude less, so 19,080 fewer moving parts to fail or to maintain. So the electric vehicles typically require far less maintenance and they cost a fraction, you know, half to a third to fuel as well. So for any any fleet manager, you know, this is this is mana from heaven. A, they're reducing their fuel costs. B, they're reducing their maintenance costs. C, these vehicles are typically connected vehicles out of the box. And you know, D, they're helping their organization massively reduce their emissions, particularly if they've taken the step already of making sure that their electricity is renewably sourced you know so th- that's that's a big one that people do the other ones are the likes of the things of as i mentioned earlier requiring emissions on the rfps rfqs that's that's always a big one that that makes a huge difference as well that one low though, though like i said that needs to be jo- that, that's not something that you can slap people over the head with as i mentioned earlier it's one you need to work with your partners your suppliers very much it, it's it has to be a joint effort because Particularly if you're sourcing from smaller organizations, they may not have the resources. So it's, it's something you, you really need to work hard with your supply base to, to, to roll out.
2: Tom, we could go on all day. Obviously, this topic of sustainability, we seem like we're scratching the surface, but yet the depth and the breadth of knowledge that's available here is really extraordinary. Special thanks to our guest, Tom Rafferty. Let's give a shout out to the sustainability imperative. Tom's presentation is going to take place on Tuesday, September 20th at ASCM Connect. We hope to see you there, if not virtually. Finally, a special thanks to all of you for joining us on this episode of The Rebound. We hope we'll be back for the next episode. We hope to see you at conference. For The Rebound, I'm Abe Ashkenazi. And I'm Bob Troublecock. All the best. Thanks again, Tom.
1: Thanks, Abe. Thanks, Bob.
0: The Rebound is a joint production of the Association for Supply Chain Management and Supply Chain Management Review. For more information, be sure to visit ASCM.org and SCMR.com. We hope you'll join us again.